our New Testament scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 16, this word today. Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed that his father was a Greek which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep, that were ordained of the apostles and elders, which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course Samothracia, the next day to Neapolis, from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gain was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace and to the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, 
and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the words of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent sergeants, saying, let these men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. The sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared, and they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them, and brought them out, and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison, and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them, and departed. The Texas Lord's Day is First Peter chapter 3, verse 21. For the past few weeks, we have spent time considering various aspects of baptism. There's one last question concerning baptism that I would like to ask this Lord's Day. What does baptism accomplish? Well, there are at least three responses to that particular question. First, Rome replies that baptism, rightly administered and received, immediately accomplishes, without exception, the forgiveness of all sins committed before baptism. The second response is that of the Baptist, who answered that baptism actually accomplishes nothing, but rather represents the forgiveness of sin that has already been accomplished in the life of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And finally, there is the response of those who are Reformed, who respond that baptism accomplishes a way 
by which God nourishes and strengthens the faith of believers who look at their baptism as God's seal, his signature of the many gracious benefits that are promised to them in the covenant of grace. Is this not the way in which Paul himself uses baptism in various passages? Think of Romans chapter 6. Notice how Paul uses baptism, that outward form of baptism, to which the Romans partook of, as a means of grace. Notice what he says. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now notice what he takes them back to think of. In order that they might be strengthened to overcome sin in their lives. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And he continues on in that particular text, not simply saying this is a symbol that's gone and passed and has no practical effect in your life now. It continues to be a means of grace to them in overcoming sin as they look to their baptism. This is what is meant when the scripture, when prayer, and when the sacraments are called means of grace. You see, salvation is not actually contained in the word that is preached in such a way that all who hear the word preached are immediately saved. Nor is it contained in prayer so that everyone who utters a prayer is immediately saved. Nor is is salvation or grace so contained in the sacraments that everyone who receives the sacraments receives the grace that is signified as sealed in that sacrament. You see, means of grace are used by God throughout the life of those who trust in Christ alone for eternal salvation in order to strengthen and to encourage an ever-growing faith in the promises made to them in the covenant of grace. Just as the benefit of your wedding certificate or your wedding ring is to be used throughout your life to encourage you to look to the promises made to one another in marriage. So likewise is baptism to be used by the Christian throughout his or her life to encourage him or her to look to the promises and the covenant of grace, which is our matrimonial covenant with the Lord. Let us consider baptism one more time. One last time in this, this extended series in First Peter chapter 3, verse 21. And in so doing, let us answer the following three questions. First, to what is baptism likened? Second, what is the effect of baptism? And third, what is the cause of baptism? First of all, then, 
So what is baptism like? We need to get a, a general overview of this epistle leading up to the context where we find 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Well, this epistle was penned by the Apostle Peter around 64 AD to Christians who were scattered throughout various Roman provinces. Namely, as we see in 1 Peter 1, 1, these were the provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Or what would presently constitute modern Turkey. His chief design in sending this letter was to encourage them to remain steadfast in the midst of their suffering and persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. The theme of suffering is certainly the direction of Peter's discourse in the immediate context of our text. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 17 and 18, for example. <clears throat> for it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Peter says, Let us remember that Christ also suffered and was put to death in the flesh by those who hated the message of truth and righteousness, but was also resurrected by the Spirit of God. Dear ones, here is an encouragement to our faith, as well as to the faith of those to whom Peter wrote, that in the midst of our suffering for Christ, whether we suffer the loss of health and property, as did Job, or whether we suffer the loss of life and life itself, like the Apostle Paul, we are not alone. Let us never think that we are going through something absolutely unique no other Christian has ever gone through. We are not alone. Christ, above all, suffered. Suffered all those. And all those who are in Christ have also suffered. Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, when we begin to, as all of us do, to feel sorry for ourselves in the midst of our suffering. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Not as is extraordinary or uncommon to man, but all that we undergo is common to man. We are not unique in our suffering. And when we begin to think that we are absolutely unique, it is, dear ones, not the Spirit of God that is witnessing that to you. It's the Spirit of the evil one. Because it is the evil one who wants you to feel sorry for yourself and to think that you're absolutely unique in what you're going through. You see, God wants us rather to, to view our temptations, our testing, our trials, and our afflictions in this way. It's not common to man. But God is faithful. That is, God is faithful to his promise that he has made to you. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. There may not be a way of escape 
entirely out of the situation, but it will be a way of escape that we may be able to bear what we are suffering. God promises it. Jesus died to secure that promise for you. It is yours. It's simply received by faith. Remember, dear ones, if we suffer with Christ, we shall be raised up and glorified together with Christ by the same Spirit of God that raised him up from the dead. However, the opposite is also true. If we will not suffer with Christ, we will not be glorified with Christ. We will not be raised with Christ. Because our unwillingness to suffer for Christ indicates we truly don't belong. We are truly not united to him. You see, we're not only united to Christ in his resurrection, we're united to Christ in suffering as well. Peter continues in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, to encourage the faith of these poor persecuted Christians by giving the specific biblical example of Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter 2.5, and who also suffered from those who hated him and despised the truth for which he stood when the ark was being built. A question at this point must be asked. To what does 1 Peter 3.19 refer? Where it says, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Does 1 Peter 3.19 refer to Christ in his human spirit descending into hell to preach to condemn souls in prison there while his body rested in the tomb? No, this cannot be the case. For it was his flesh or body that was put to death according to 1 Peter 3.18 Look at the end of verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 3. He was put to death in the flesh. That was what was put to death. It was not his human spirit that was put to death. Thus, it must be his flesh or body that was resurrected and not his spirit that was resurrected or made alive or quickened. You see, his human spirit did not die any more than your human spirit or my human spirit does not die when our body dies. His human spirit did not die. Therefore, it could not be quickened or made alive. But we're not dead in the first place. So that cannot be the, the, the right or the proper interpretation of 1 Peter 3, verse 19. Well, does it refer to Christ then preaching through the mouth of Noah to the ungodly at the time in which the ark was being built, who now as spirits are imprisoned in hell? Yes, this is the proper interpretation and understanding of 1 Peter 3.19. For this view alone allows for an accurate understanding of the last phrase in 1 Peter 3:18, follow along in your Bibles, beginning with the last phrase in 1 Peter 3:18. While I fill out the words with 
what appears to be the proper sense. Look in your Bibles, and I'm going to give you a little more expanded version, but which adds, I believe, <clears throat> the, the, the sense which God intended uh, as 1 Peter 3.19 was inspired by him. Okay. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but resurrected from the dead by the Spirit of God by whom Christ as mediator went and preached through Noah his prophet at the time before the flood and to those people who perished in the flood and are now spirits imprisoned in hell. When did the preaching of Christ take place? When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, according to 1 Peter 3.20. To whom did Christ preach? To those who were disobedient, according to 1 Peter 3.20, and perished in the flood. Through whom did Christ preach? Through Noah, who is called the preacher of righteousness, in 2 Peter 2.5, who were saved from the flood. A few out of all those on the earth at that time, only eight souls, that is Noah and his household, according to 1 Peter 3.20. And into what did they flee to be saved through the flood of water? Into the ark. First Peter 2.20 <clears throat> Here is an observation. If Christ preached to those who perished in the flood through the voice of Noah, then the gospel of Christ was preached to them in Noah's day, as it was preached to Abraham, according to Galatians 3.8, as it was preached to Israel, according to Hebrews 4.2, and as it is preached to us in the New Covenant as well. The Gospel was preached throughout the Old Testament. The Good News pointing to Jesus Christ as the only hope of eternal salvation was preached. The Messiah to come was preached. In shadows and heights, it was preached, nevertheless. You see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we find that Peter states essentially the same thing. When he says, I'll begin with verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come upon you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, the Spirit of Christ was in them, just like we said that the Holy Spirit was in Noah and that Christ was preached through Noah. Here it says exactly the same thing. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it is revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, 
which things the angels desired to look into. The gospel is not essentially different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. Certain circumstances have occurred which make our situation far more enviable, far greater than the blessings that we enjoy because Christ has indeed come. All those who heard Christ preach through Noah, dear ones, were warned of the coming flood and by implication invited to flee for shelter into the ark of their salvation. They were condemned in that they did not believe the gospel preached by Christ through Noah. Though Noah himself believed and was accounted righteous by faith according to Hebrews 11, verse 7. Let me give you now a practical application in this passage thus far. Beloved, if Christ preached through his ministers of old, how much more now that he has accomplished redemption through his death and his resurrection does Christ preach through his ministers now who are faithful? And how he warns all who hear to flee alone to him as their ark of salvation, lest they perish in the flood of hell itself. Dear ones, those who fell asleep, those who ignored, those who feasted as if everything was going to be the same for the next 120 years, those who mocked, those who despised the preaching of Christ through Noah, perished in the flood. So likewise will everyone who does not hear the voice of Christ through his ministry and flee to Christ alone for eternal salvation. If we do not receive, Jesus said, one does not receive uh, you whom I sent, they don't receive the Father who sent me. The patience of God, beloved, waited 120 years. The long-suffering of God waited 120 years while the ark was being built and while Noah preached his message of righteousness and truth, according to Genesis 6 3. There finally came an end to the patience of God. And so it is true that everyone who hears the gospel but will not embrace Jesus Christ and the promises offered to them the gospel. There will come an end to the patience of God and then it will be too late. The door of the ark will be closed and judgment will follow. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering? not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Some people take God's forbearance to mean that God approves of their sins. Some take God's patience to mean that God is not truly angry and does not truly despise their sins. The going to the patience and the long-suffering of God is intended to lead us to repentance. 
not to lead us to continue in our sin until we get caught or until it's too late. Do not wait. Do not continue or dear ones in sin. Bless the goodness of God and the patience of God by turning to Jesus Christ and repenting of your sin. So to summarize thus far, Peter encourages the Christians to whom he writes that if they suffer like Christ and Noah from the hands and mouths of scorners and persecutors for doing the will of God, they will, like Christ and Noah, be saved. Christ was saved from death by his resurrection. Noah and his family were saved through the flood of water by entering into the ark. But how? Now the question comes. But how are we saved when we are persecuted for Christ's sake? Peter declares in 1 Peter 3.21 the like figure whereinto even baptism does also now save us. Peter says there is a picture in the salvation of Noah and his family out of the flood of water which answers to our salvation out of the flood of hellfire. For just as the ark was the outward sign and seal of salvation to Noah and his household, so similarly, baptism is the outward sign and seal of salvation to believers in their household. Just as all in Noah's household received the sign and seal of salvation in entering into the ark, so likewise, believing parents in their households receive the sign and seal of salvation in entering into baptism. But some like Ham, son of Noah, some like Ham had not actually entered into Christ by faith, to whom the ark pointed, as appears to be the case from Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 25, where Ham is cursed son Canaan is cursed, even as some of our children, like Ham, may not actually enter into Christ by faith, to whom their outward baptism points. For in every sacrament, there are two parts. Listen to the words of question 163 of the larger catechism. What are the parts of a sacrament? The parts of a sacrament are two. The one, an outward and sensible sign, used according to Christ's own appointment. The other, an inward and spiritual grace, thereby signified. The outward sign and seal, the inward grace, signified by the outward sign. <clears throat> you see, Noah partook of both the outward and the inward parts of the Old Testament baptism in entering into the ark and entering into Christ, the ark of his salvation. Whereas Ham only partook of the outward parts. He only partook 
of the outward sun of entering into the ark, which is not entering into the ark of the salvation in Christ. Ham was like Ishmael, who received the outward sign, did not know the inward grace. And like Esau, and like Judas, and like the branches who are said to be in Christ in John 15, too, but do not bear fruit, and thereby are cut off and cast into the fire. And like Simon the Sorcerer, like many others ever mentioned in the scripture, who received one part of the sacrament, and not received that to which the outward part points the reality of the inward grace. The professing believers to whom Peter writes are herein encouraged to look to their baptism, but not to look to the mere outward sign and seal of water, but to look in faith to Christ who is the ark of their salvation and to his promises of salvation from the guilt, from the power, from the punishment of sin and hell. Here we see how the inward grace of a sacrament is attributed to the outward sign. When we read in 1 Peter 3, verse 21, Peter again says, The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. And then he goes to qualify what he means by baptism. We see many times in the scripture how the particular meaning of the inward grace is attached to the outward sign. And so to use the outward sign, many times the writers of Scripture are actually pointing to not the mere outward sign, but speak specifically of the inward grace signified by that outward sign. <clears throat> Again, listen to the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27. Section 2. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, between the outward sign and the inward grace. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. The effect of the inward work is attributed to the outward sign. That's why Peter can say, baptism now saves you. It's not the actual outward sign of baptism that saves them. It's the inward grace. Because there's a sacramental union between the outward sign and the inward grace. You see this also to be the case. In Acts 22.16, when Paul is told to rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. It's not the mere outward sign of baptism by water, but it is the inward grace which that points that washes away sins. It is the inward spiritual baptism. Likewise, in Titus 3.5, we read of the washing of regeneration. It is not that baptism itself 
has the effect of regenerating, but it is in fact the inward grace of regeneration is what is spoken of when washing is meant. Washing, that is regeneration. Again, is what is meant when Jesus, the Last Supper, says, this is my body. And this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He was in effect again, simply saying that this particular outward sign has a spiritual significance and we are not to take it to be literally that the outward sign accomplishes that grace. But it is the work of God's Spirit using the inward grace that accomplishes that work. Dear ones, if the baptism of our children does not issue in their personal faith in Christ, and in the promises made to them in their baptism, just like adults who may receive the outward signs but not the inward grace. They show themselves to be branches in Christ that bear no fruit and eventually will be thrown into the flood of everlasting fire. Such ones are not the children of promise, like Isaac and Jacob, but rather children of the flesh, like Esau who despise the spiritual birthright offered to them and rather have sold it for a pot of stew to satisfy the appetite of the flesh. Oh, how much more severe will be the judgment of such children and adults who have trampled upon the promises of God made to them in the baptism. When therefore you are persecuted, mocked, scorned and despised for Christ's sake, as for Noah, Job, Christ, Paul, and these Christians to whom Paul, Peter now writes. Peter encourages you this day to look at your baptism and watch your baptism. Look in faith to the wealth of promises made to you by Christ in the covenant of grace and sealed with Christ's own signature in your baptism, which the world could not buy all of those promises the riches of that wealth the world with all of its riches could not possibly buy and as you do this your baptism becomes to you more than a mere symbol of something in the past it becomes a glorious means of strengthening and renewing your faith in Christ throughout your whole life what is the effect of baptism is the second question the Apostle Peter declares that it is not the mere outward washing and putting away of the filth of the flesh and baptism with water that is effective, but rather the inward washing and putting away of the filth of the soul in baptism with the Spirit that is always effective in the lives of those who are united to Christ, whether as an elect infant or as a believing child or believing adult. This inward baptism is always effective. One of the effects of this spiritual baptism 
and the life of those who believe it is the grace, according to Peter, to answer or confess one's faith before men. When Peter says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's one of the effects of the spiritual baptism that will eventually be realized in elect infants and is realized in those who have come to believe and trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. You see, there are the fruit of our lives, the fruit of our behavior, the fruit of our actions is certainly an effect of the spiritual baptism wherein we are cleansed from sin. But Peter states that the testimony of our lips also is an effect of spiritual baptism. Just as the word preached is needed to interpret the silent action in the sacrament, so also is the confession and testimony of faith with the mouth needed to interpret the silent action and the silent deed of our lives. The effect of spiritual baptism is not only uttered before the elders and before other Christians, but also before those who are not Christians. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, the same chapter, Look with me at verses 13 through 16. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversations in Christ. Here, Jones is a powerful witness and testimony in our lives that we have been not only outwardly baptized, but more importantly, that we have been inwardly baptized. The confession of a conscience purified by God. I ask you, beloved, are you ashamed to let your faith in Christ be seen and heard before your friends, before your co-workers, your family members, fellow students, neighbors, adversaries? Dear ones, one of the fruits of spiritual baptism is a desire and willingness to confess Christ to others for the honor of Christ and for the salvation of the lost. There is a time to be silent, but there is certainly a time to open your mouth and to testify of what Christ has accomplished. Are you afraid? Realize, dear ones, that God is greater than all your fears and will help you to stand faithful if you cast yourself upon Him in faith. For even courage is a grace that has already been purchased for you when Christ died on the cross. 
You don't have to go look for courage. You don't have to go and search for courage. It is already purchased for you in Christ. Every gift, benefit, grace has been purchased by Christ when he died on the cross. And the fact that he has been raised from the dead means that he did in fact secure, purchase all of those benefits for you, including courage. You need, dear ones, only make a withdrawal on the courage you need out of that spiritual bank account in heaven. Simply go and say, pray, beseech the Lord to give to you the courage that he has already purchased. And I encourage you to begin to pray for the opportunity, even if you feel very weak and frail, about sharing your faith, confessing Christ before men. Begin praying that God will give you the opportunity to witness for him or David. The third question, what is the cause of baptism? but is rather stated by Peter to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Herein lies the very foundation for our spiritual resurrection to new life. Why are we raised with a spiritual baptism to new life? Because Jesus was raised from the dead to new life. We live, dear ones, because Christ lives. And Christ's resurrection guarantees that all the blessings and benefits of the covenant of grace have actually been purchased and secured for us. If Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith, Paul says, is in vain. You are yet in your sins, if that tomb still contains your body. For if Christ is not raised, your sins are not indeed paid for. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we might as well just live it up now. Because this is all there is here. This is it. We might as well make the most of this life. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. However, Christ is raised. Gloriously. That tomb is empty. And every Lord's Day we celebrate his resurrection, which not only secures our spiritual baptism and resurrection in life, but secures our bodily resurrection on that final day. All doubt as to the fulfillment of all the promises of God made to us in Christ Jesus are realized because Jesus Christ Live. And all those doubts must flee when we look to the empty tomb. And by faith we look to heaven and to Christ, seated at the right hand of God's God. If your life is not in a crucified and resurrected Christ, I speak as plainly as I possibly can. You will perish, even if you have received the outward sign of baptism. You will perish in your sins. 
It's however your life is in a crucified and resurrected Savior, you, like Noah, will escape the flood and live forever in heaven where there is no pain, no tears, no heartache, no sorrow, no sin, no more temptation to sin, no death, but only joy and delight forever and ever in knowing, loving, serving your heavenly husband. Our Father, how we praise you, how we thank you, our Father, for all of the many benefits that have been purchased by Christ for us through his death, secured for us through his resurrection. Our Lord and our God, as we look and continue throughout our lives to look uh, to what our baptism means, that thou hast made to us such wonderful promises and has guaranteed those promises to all who believe there is the outward sign and seal of baptism. Lord God, we, we do praise it. We do thank you. We have become recipients of such wonderful uh, promises and blessings. Forgive us, our Lord and our God, for rather choosing to look at the various circumstances, temptations, afflictions. Forgive us, Lord, for casting our Lord of faith away and choosing rather to feel sorry for ourselves, to pity ourselves and what we suffer for being in this life. Cause us rather, Lord, to embrace the word which was preached today the gospel of our salvation. And Lord, we would see that, in fact, our baptism signifies and seals that there is salvation only in our heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us flee, O Lord, from all wrath. Let us flee, O Lord our God, from all of our judgment to the eternal glory prepared for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask, Lord, these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at 
www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.